Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. In our last episode of Bird's Eye, we discussed the comparative virtues of multi-party and two-party systems. We looked at other countries, we learned some lessons, but we also saw that while there may be virtues to multi-party systems, those are going to be hard to bring home to America directly very easily. So it's important to learn those lessons, but then it's important, as we sort of concluded, to figure out how we can apply those lessons practically to make our politics healthier here in America by doing reform within the system that we already have. So, to continue that discussion, we have today a very special guest, our first guest, Benjamin Singer, who's the executive director of Show Me Integrity, a Missouri-based voting and politics reform organization. Their website is showmeintegrity.org. If you'd like to learn more about them, it's linked in the show notes. With that said, Benjamin, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself for us? Hi, thank you so much, guys, for having me on. I love Spectacles. Everyone should read Spectacles. This is Benjamin Singer. <laughs> I'm the executive director at Show Me Integrity. We are Missouri's only cross-partisan good government and political reform organization. We like to say our mission is to create a more effective ethical government that is of, by, and for the people. Great. That sounds wonderful. And and thank you again for coming on and thank you for those kind words about spectacles. We're glad that you're enjoying everything we're doing. So, Mr. Singer, Ben, Ben, how should I address you? Yeah, Benjamin or Benj, either one is fine. There's way too many Bens out there though. <laughs> Great, Benj. So, Show Me Integrity is involved in political and voting system reform in Missouri. And so I guess one of the things that Harry and I would really like to ask you first off is what's the problem with our politics as you see it, as Show Me Integrity sees it in Missouri and nationally that you're really trying to address? Sure, absolutely. I'll start with a short story that no one is ever surprised by when I tell them this. So I grew up in St. Louis area. I went to college across the river in Illinois in the Chicago area. And after college, I was working for a couple of conservative leaders who had started a homelessness organization, helped people reentering society from prison primarily, but ended up serving a lot of people experiencing homelessness. And our results mm -hmm. were amazing, helping people get back on their feet, saving taxpayers tons of money versus having people continue going through criminal justice system and kids in foster care and all of that. And I tell this story about something happening in Illinois for a reason, which is, you know, I was coming from a red state in Missouri, going to a blue state. And, you know, we see the same dynamics happening because what happened was the state of Illinois wasn't paying social service providers. They owed us over $2 million and they raised taxes supposedly to keep funding human services like ours that were getting people out of poverty permanently. But instead, after they raised taxes, they still cut funding to services that were helping lift people out of poverty and gave an $80 million annual tax break to the stock exchange in Chicago. Again, an $80 million annual tax break 
to the Jeez. Mercantile Exchange, which had just donated $200,000 to Rahm Emanuel's campaign for oh, mayor <laughs> right before campaign contribution limits went into effect. Wow. And like I said, this story never surprises anyone because we all know how politics yeah. works. And yeah. those who have influence use it to serve themselves and everyone else gets screwed, frankly. So the problem yeah. is that, you know, and polling shows this consistently, 90% of people believe that politics is broken, is corrupt, but polling also shows that 90% of people don't believe change is possible. And we're actually really lucky to be here in Missouri and across the state, we have ballot initiatives at state and local levels. So change is possible. So getting back to your question about what's wrong with our politics, a lot of people know about the problems with money in politics. They don't know that reform is possible, but it is. But on the voting reform side of things, it's broken as well. Because mm -hmm. as you know, with our party primary system, it's about who can be the farthest right or the farthest left or whatever is in vogue in that party at the time, right. whoever can be the most extreme. And then they end up unable to actually work together to get things done. Mm -hmm. And so, and then you end up with a, either a pendulum swaying back and forth in a totally unstable way of our public policy, or you just end up with some consistent extremism that isn't balanced public policy and doesn't make sense, but is politically advantageous. So the way I like to talk about the overall problem is we have two currencies in our politics, which are voting and money, and both of them are broken. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, the less representative an elected official is in both of those currencies in voting and money, the more likely they are to get elected. So in the party primary example, the more extreme they are, the farther they are from actually the general electorate, the more likely they are to keep getting reelected in the party primary system. Mm -hmm. And with the money, the more time they spend cozying up to, you know, well-heeled special interests, well-connected insiders, and the less time they spend with their constituents and engaging with their constituents on the issues that really matter to their voters, again, the more likely they are to get elected. And that, my friends, is a broken system. Right. I mean, that, I mean, both what you laid out, sort of the story that you're telling about your experiences in Illinois. Again, I think you're right. We are all familiar with, unfortunately, all familiar with that. And, you know, that, you know, in itself, in addition to what you're saying, just generally about voters and the, the, the system of campaign finance, the way that, the way that, you know, electoral systems have, have sort of, well, screwed us a little bit. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so you've laid out sort of what the problem is and, you know, what the problem is, I think also makes a very strong case for the need for reform. Just looking through Show Me Integrity and what it's doing, what it's doing, you have a sort of unique idea here, what, what is called, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, approval voting. So do you want to sort of lay out what that is for us? Absolutely. So we were familiar with the problem, as you said, and we were exploring some potential solutions for this at local and state levels in Missouri. And we heard this podcast on 80,000 hours. You guys familiar with that podcast? I'm not, but I'm not, I'm not surprised that podcasts are changing the world. That's right. <laughs> That's what we're here to do, gentlemen. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. I, I don't know, Philip. So it's, no. really, it's, it's popular in the effective altruism community. And okay. Which one, one of our board members uh, is a follower of, and he heard this organization, the Center for Election Science, their executive director, Aaron Hamlin, talking about approval voting. 
and some of the ways that approval voting is actually even a step beyond the runoff systems that many of us are familiar with, either mm -hmm. a top two runoff, which is very common at municipal levels and some states. That's and, what we have in California. Yeah, right here. Right. Um, the and whole then state is, is runoff. Instant runoff, which is the same thing as ranked choice voting, which is very in vogue right now. But runoff systems don't entirely solve the vote splitting problem. And approval voting can actually create the most representative outcomes in terms of electing candidates who have the broadest possible support from the electorate, which is something I think we can all agree a noble goal of democracy. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we learned about this and we started talking with them and we started talking with local election officials and election officials and elected officials and, you know, civic leaders in St. Louis. And it turned out that approval voting was going to be the best solution for reforming elections in St. Louis in the city, better than ranked choice voting because ranked choice voting requires a lot of new software and equipment depending on what the local area has. Interesting. And okay. then also, you know, ranked choice voting is a great system. I think we're jumping ahead here in some of the questions you all have planned, but ranked choice voting is a great system when you have two viable candidates and some potential spoiler candidates uh, because it helps reallocate mm -hmm. second choice votes, you know, like the classic, you know, Gary Johnson to a Donald Trump or Jill Stein to a Hillary Clinton or whatever, Ralph Nader to Al Gore type of deal. Or, you know, you could say a Ross Perot to whichever one, Bill Clinton or HW. So right. ranked choice voting is great for that application. It breaks down a little bit when you start to have three or more viable candidates. And we, we can get into the weeds in a minute if you want, but approval voting doesn't have that same problem because you just approve as many as you like and whoever has the most votes wins. Super simple, super effective, worked with the election machines in St. Louis City. And, you know, we, we wrote a policy, we talked to community leaders, it was endorsed by you know, every major newspaper and elected officials and democracy organizations. And it passed with 68% in the city of St. Louis after we gathered 20,000 signatures to place it onto the ballot. We only needed 10,000 ballot and we exceeded the ballot signatures by uh, multiple thousands. So, you know, change is possible. That's, it just requires yeah. being smart and strategic and grinding it away. And we got it done. And sure enough, now, Saint, instead of St. Louis's mayor being elected with 32% of the vote in the Democratic primary, like happened four years ago, this year, mm -hmm. she would, you know, a, a candidate was elected with 52% of the vote, you know, mm -hmm. in the in a nonpartisan general election that was truly competitive. There was some, you know, everything went really smoothly, exactly as we wanted it to. And then there were some unexpected things that happened that showed some really fantastic, I think, uh, unintended consequences of the St. Louis system that I think should be replicated all across the country. And I think the St. Louis system is going to become like the Missouri nonpartisan court plan. I do believe it's going to be a model for the rest of the country to follow. That sounds great. I would at some point like to ask sort of about those unintended consequences. But I'm, first, I just wanted to sort of note, right, as well, what, what you're saying about 
ranked choice. I mean, I, I too think ranked choice has some benefits, but just thinking about like the New York city Merrill primary, right. I think you had a couple viable candidates, I think on, right. I mean, it wasn't totally clear who really was. I mean, I guess Eric Adams ended up being the consensus preference and maybe that really was how it sort of was supposed to end up. But I do think people were kind of confused about what's going on. Obviously there were problems. I mean, New York, I, I think generally the state of New York and the city, have their elections seem to be fairly poorly run generally speaking but i think that you're right that there was some confusion right with the ranked choice system maybe people will adapt and i and to to be clear again i don't think that ranked choice is necessarily a dead end but i think that you're making an interesting point that a simpler system intuitive system might be more compelling for people so that seems to be that you're, you know you're right there is there's there's an advantage to a system where you just check the names that you approve and then it goes to a runoff and it's pretty clear yeah right, where that, where where the chips fall yeah on that note benj could you just lay out in in some detail exactly how the approval based system works for for our listeners sure absolutely and then I'm also happy to talk briefly about, you know, again, ranked choice voting is still far better than most plurality systems yeah, that right. we use in America. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. But, yeah. But in addition to the complexity, I, especially for your sophisticated listeners, I think they'll be interested in um, a, a representation issue when it comes to ranked choice voting as well. So start with approval voting because it's really simple. So the way we set it up in St. Louis, the St. Louis system that's going to become a national model, we made the elections fully nonpartisan, which is actually pretty normal for municipal elections. St. Yeah. Louis, St. Louis, I believe, was the only remaining municipality in the state that still had partisan elections. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we made it fully nonpartisan, had an open nonpartisan primary, Everyone would run with no party labels. Again, similar to every other municipality in Missouri and many other states. And But what was different about this one is you could vote for as many as you like. So let's say there are two candidates who both are all about fighting corruption and cleaning up government and getting a government that works for the people instead of the just the well-connected special interests. Normally, you'd have to vote strategically. You'd think, well, I really like the way this one's talking, but that one's raising a little bit more money, you know, maybe cutting more deals, but they still say they're anti-corruption. So I should maybe vote for them because they seem like they really have a chance to win. Well, in this case, just vote for both or three or four, however many you like. You can vote for all of them. And in the what we set up, the top two, no matter how much support they get in that primary go to the general election. So it's not an election and a runoff. It's a primary and a general. So even if one candidate gets 55%, the top two will still go both go to the runoff because you could actually have two candidates who both get 55 or 60%. Yeah. So they, they go to the runoff and that provides an incentive for voters to actually vote for their two favorite candidates. If they want to see their top two, go head to head. And so no longer yeah. is it the lesser of two evils, but instead in the general election, they get to pick between the two favorites, the two most popular candidates. Whereas yeah. if you look at, you know, crowded fields that we're familiar with, like presidential primary elections, either the Democrat or the Republican side, people are used to having to try to game out, well, who is going to be popular 
with, you know, this demographic or that demographic or swing voters or has the best chance to win, whatever, instead of just voting their conscience, voting their Mm -hmm. values. And in this case, it lets voters vote their honest preference. And a really interesting thing happened where in some cases, the two candidates who made it, one was at, you know, say 55 and another was at 45. And, you know, sometimes there were other candidates in that race too. Well, in that case, we sort of thought, well, maybe we should have written this differently. And if someone got more than 50% and no one else in that field, in that, say, you know, aldermanic race or mayoral race got more than 50%, then it should just be called after that. Although we were conscious of the fact that the general election really should be where voters have the ultimate say. And there was a case to be made. But then the case was made for us and our, our policy choices were really validated because in some of those races, it actually flipped in the general election mm. because those new candidates, those insurgent candidates taking on some entrenched incumbents had another month to campaign and make yeah. the case and see who voted and who didn't vote and go out and talk to voters and say, hey, I see you voted, you know, generals coming up. Here's why I think you should vote for me or, hey, I, I see you didn't vote, but you have a chance to vote for me now. And this was the beautiful unintended consequence that we had was we gave every candidate, including all the grassroots candidates, a free poll and a poll better than money can buy because it was an actual poll of voters showing up at the poll and filling in the bubble for Mm -hmm. who they liked. And Mm -hmm. this leveled the playing field in a tremendous way by giving everyone a chance to see the field in front of them and have a month of campaign after that. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I guess one thing that we, we'd we like to talk about, and in some ways this is less relevant to to municipal elections, as, as you've pointed out, which are often nonpartisan, but in the case of St. Louis, which, which was until very recently. Mm-hmm. In our most recent episode of Bird's Eye, which at the time of recording actually hasn't been published yet. So sorry, you didn't get a chance to listen to that. Maybe to get get a little bit ahead of uh, on these on this issue that I'm going to talk about very briefly. On our most recent episode of Bird's Eye, we talked about um, two party and multi party systems and presented and discussed, among other things, the argument that a two party system. In, in a number of ways, helps to contribute to sort of an extremism in politics, essentially, by dividing politics into two really oppositional and adversarial camps. And essentially, once parties are very clearly sorted, catering to the moderate voter becomes less and less rewarding and catering to the extremist voter becomes more and more rewarding. And so there's an argument. And of course, we also talk about advantages of the two-party system in, in, in this episode and, 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 and disadvantages of a multi-party. So it's not just a black and white two-party bad, multi-party good. But there are these arguments that really a two-party system is at the heart of our political extremism. And I guess the question I'm interested in is, do you, do you agree with that to any extent? And is there, at the municipal level, it's not as relevant, but if you see approval voting and other, other alternative voting systems, or particularly approval voting, as advantageous to pursue above the municipal level where things 
are partisan much more frequently, right? Do you think that that this is enough, like uh, that we can that voter voting system reform can do a sufficient job to address our sort of political extremism, or do you think that? There's maybe we need to address the fact that we live in a two-party system, and maybe that's part of the problem. Actually, if I could just jump in and add something to that, maybe this is modifying your question somewhat, but does approval voting open up the system? In in your view, could it open up the system to a two-party system? Is that valuable? I guess that's it, right? Is that valuable in addition to Philip's question? Yeah, and uh, that was, I asked, that was a lot of information, a lot of questions at once. So, you know, pick one, pick a couple, do do whatever, but would love your thoughts on, on that whole topic. Yeah, absolutely, gentlemen. I agree with your instincts to the degree that you've expressed them. Totally. I think a lot of the greatest, the the most honest wisdom we get from politicians is when they're no longer running for office. And mm-hmm. what George Washington said about the dangers of political parties, we have all seen play out yeah. tremendously as our parties have, like you said, gotten more and more sorted. And certainly the two-party system is the epitome of that. If we had a multi-party system, would we still see the same kind of... Uh, frankly, corruption and polarization and gridlock and hatred that we see with a two-party system? I don't know because we don't Mm -hmm. really have that. Our electoral system generally doesn't support that, but certainly the two-party system is not working. Now, is voting reform good enough to get us out of these problems, to solve, to work around these problems? I think with approval voting, yes. I think with ranked choice voting significantly, but not as much because with ranked choice voting, there's still some incentive to cater to a base, a far right or a far left or whatever that spectrum for that level of government looks like or whatever the issues are. I think it still encourages some of that because ultimately candidates and voters in the middle still generally get squeezed out in ranked choice voting. Yeah. It, you know, just to use the, you know, traditional Republican Democrat, you know, spec right left spectrum, you know, you're gonna have probably, you know, let's say roughly 40% on each side or 30 to 40% on each side, you know, picking red or blue. And then in the middle, folks will get squeezed out. And in ranked choice voting, their second place votes are going to get reallocated either to red or blue. Whereas with approval voting, it's totally disruptive. And wherever you are Mm -hmm. on the spectrum, if you can pick up enough, if we're looking at it as a political spectrum, if you can pick up a big enough spectrum around you, no matter where you are, Mm -hmm. including if you're smack dab in the middle, you can build a, a winning coalition and take the best ideas and the brightest minds of across the spectrum and build a, that winning coalition. So I do think approval yeah. voting is enough to get us there with or without party labels on the ballot. I guess then I have sort of a follow-up question there, sort of what is, if I'm, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? I think that the sense I'm getting from you is, is a skepticism of the party system in general. And maybe you know, to not, I don't know if pushback is the right word, but, you know, there is this argument that, you know, parties are sort of instrumental for sort of sorting people out into into groups which make elections, which might otherwise be confusing, helping voters understand who stands where and this and that and organize coalitions together, not 
ad hoc, but sort of more consistently. Do you have that skepticism of, of the party system? And, you know, and do you think that this is sort of a way of, of, of breaking through that? Or what role does the party, should the party system play under an approval runoff system? Good question. So again, I do have a big skepticism of, of the partisan system when it comes to the two party system. I think in a mm -hmm. multi, in a system that works with more than two parties legitimately i think you could have more interesting coalitions you could have groups endorsing multiple parties if you had approval voting for instance and you mm -hmm. can people could be more honest with their policy preferences if they can support multiple candidates or multiple parties yeah. i am somewhat familiar with you know some of the arguments for parties as a tool for organizing and coalition building and yeah endorsement heuristics and whatnot so yeah i think if you could accommodate multiple parties say through you know fusion voting or or approval voting or other or proportional representation i think it could be better i mean it's really interesting you look at the new coalition that came together in israel that is the most bizarre political coalition yeah. <laughs> you could ever see. People, no kidding. Yeah. People across the spectrum on every issue imaginable working together. It's, you know, almost like a lion and a lamb. We'll see if it lasts. I'm very skeptical a yeah. government like that can last, but yeah it's it's great to to see other models and learn from them yeah so i guess this maybe we're maybe you know circling this sort of the same topic but i'm curious if bringing up in addition to ranked choice you know the other system that sort of predominates in europe which is proportional representation do you think that you know again i think this gets back right into this question about parties but is it is approval runoff as you see it the best way in the United States simply because it would be the logistical political challenge to, challenges to getting something like PR or, or immense, or is there some unique virtue of approval runoff? And maybe you've already hit on this before, so let me know if you think that there's not much else to say, but I would be curious about what you think of PR versus, versus approval runoff at the pragmatic level, but also at the level of sort of what are their virtues in themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. Given how baked in like single member districts and winner take all elections right. are in the US, it definitely feels like pushing for proportional representation is an uphill battle. That said, you know, at some point that might be a place where the reform community ultimately decides is worth it. And we will start doing what we've done, you know, on voting reform or what has been the successful model for every socio-political movement in American history, which is starting at local and state levels until yeah. it becomes popular and well understood for its virtues and then sweeps the country. I think that approval voting gets you to a very similar place mm -hmm. a lot more quickly and easily. And we will right. we'll yeah. see how it plays out. But you know, you look at like the kind of coalition it seems like Quentin Lucas, you know, put together through a nonpartisan top two runoff system in Kansas City that mm -hmm. is, you know, very different from, you know, the Republican Democrat type of divide you see at the state level in Missouri. Yeah. And it, it gives you some hope that when you take that that partisanship out of it and you allow a system that creates for more 
diversity and more coalition building and and cooperation instead of competition to some degree that that you can get that. And I re- I realized you know I run a Missouri organization. All your listeners are probably not from Missouri, so my apologies to everyone. But hey, you're learning about Missouri. You should come. No, visit. it's it's yeah, it's 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 good because I think you know as an aside, I think there's under coverage from a lot of political outlets of of places like Missouri and St. Louis and Kansas City. I'm biased because I'm from there, and I would love people talked about it more. But um, on that subject, Ben, something I wanted to mention earlier, on that subject of some of sort of the political practical challenges, I wanted to say a few years ago, I worked for an independent running for Senate, a U.S. Senate in Missouri, and the signature collection and submission pro- process to the state was was incredibly difficult. There were a lot of sort of small text restrictions placed on, you know, how they had to be submitted and the kind of information and all this to make it as prohibitive as possible for these people to enter the race because the Republican-controlled state legislature was not interested in allowing that kind of competition. So I'm curious, what sort of have been some of the challenges to getting approval runoff? What were some of the challenges? It sounds like you managed them very well in St. Louis, but as you anticipate moving into into more localities and municipalities, do you expect it to be a, a doable challenge? Are there, are there certain obstacles that are sort of daunting in that process? What's your thought in that regard? Sure. So it sounds like you were working with my friend and friend of Show Me Integrity, Craig O'Deer, when he was- Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We love Craig and and all he does for for the cause of good government and putting voters first. And it's a shame that our system doesn't allow men of, of real conscience and integrity who don't want to buy into the oppositional system like Craig to have really any yeah. viable path. Yeah. In terms of the signature gathering, so first of all, I don't want to blame the Republicans that's been on the books for a long time. Yeah. Missouri was under democratic control for a long time. It's yeah. As you, as you know, and as you know, the, the term is picking up buzz. It's a duopoly where both parties have an interest in maintaining that. Yeah. Duopoly. I I, I should, I should say the party controlled legislature is not interested in, in entertaining opposition from outside their bounds. Absolutely. That's a more accurate way of putting it for sure. So, Two things. First of all, I know the signature gathering is is difficult, and yes, I believe it is at least somewhat deliberately so to create barriers for independence. Although I will say you need some way to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of, of course. who deserves a spot on the ballot so you don't end up with a hundred names on on a ballot. But you know, we gathered, you know, like I said, 20,000 signatures, about 12,000 of them valid. But we did it in St. Louis to get Prop D on the ballot, Proposition D for democracy, which created the approval voting system and runoff. So, you know, that was a similar amount. You know, I know it's a 10,000 signature requirement statewide, but you have a lot less time, I think, to gather it. I don't know when you're required to start. But I will say it's it's doable. You just have to have an operation and it does take money, which is, you know, another s- sort of problem in our political system to to a degree. So it's doable. That said, we are definitely interested in 
one of the reforms we're passing is cutting that number of signatures in half to 5,000 valid signatures to be gathered statewide, which I think will still, you know, not allow non-serious candidates who don't truly have public support mm-hmm. and can't truly manage an operation because you do need to be able to manage a government to keep them off the ballot. Whereas, you know, I think the same people who can gather 5,000 can gather 10,000 and it just will allow them to focus on other activities as well. So that is one of the reforms we're interested in. Absolutely. And I, I think the future should be in electronic signatures. You do end up with some, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the same potential like authorization and security problems potentially with that as you do with electronic voting, which is definitely, as far as I know, not quite there yet from a security perspective, of course, getting on the ballot is less as a, of a security concern than determining the winner of the election. So right. I, you know, that is something we're interested in exploring in the future too, potentially piloting in a medium-sized city in Missouri to see how that goes with ele- electronic signature gathering for ballot initiatives and independent candidates. I think one of the running up on our time here. So I think one of the, one of the last questions we were really interested in exploring was Harry, why don't you you take this? Sure, yeah. I guess this this gets, I think, maybe a little bit more into the, the the metaphysical side of what we're aiming at in our politics. But I guess one question, right, is you know you sort of talked about. I think if I can pull out just you know from doing research into what Show Me Integrity does, what you've said on the podcast, two problems, right? One is this issue of representation that our politics is fundamentally not representative enough of of you know all sort of people's preferences and, and, and interests. And then another thread that I'm pulling out is that, you know, your feeling and the feeling of Show Me Integrity is a cross-partisan organization is that politics has become too extreme on the left and on the right. And so my question is, is the goal or is your, how would you prioritize this sort of goal? Is there any tension that you perceive between these goals, right? Um, and which takes priority? Is it the is the goal making politics more moderate or more representative? And I think, right, you know, you can sort of, I think you figure generally, right, that the electorate tends to be perhaps more moderate than, for example, you might see on the right or the left. But I don't know that that's always going to be a guarantee. And so which takes priority, at least theoretically? Is it representation that we want or is it political moderation? And then a sort of additional question there is, do we want to moderate our politics, right? Is in sort of civility between different sides and 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 that kind of stuff? Or do are we also trying to moderate the policy regime that we have in the country? And that I know that's a big question. So you can start with one of the with the first one and then maybe we'll we'll re, we'll revisit the second one if you have time. Well I think you're asking all the right questions and probably most of your listeners intuitively understand some of the answers. But this question of more moderate or more representative is a really important question, and I'm glad you're asking, because two things. One, first of all, they are going to generally be the same thing. But two, to the people out there who are real, you know, conservative warriors or progressive warriors, you know, they might not like that idea of more moderate. And what I say to those people is you would be surprised at how many of the issues you care about, you are not alone on your end of this political spectrum and caring about. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, look at overlap between, you know, the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street and concerns of people in the middle, 
you're actually going to see a lot of the same feelings that the system is working for, you know, well-connected insiders who donate lots of money to politicians, and it's not working for most Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are issue after issue, you know, criminal justice reform, lots of other hot button topics that we actually share across the political spectrum. And so Mm -hmm. more moderate is going to be more representative, but it's also not necessarily really compromising on a lot of policies. And I think, you know, a lot of people are have common sense wherever they are in the political spectrum. And so people who want to see more experimentation, you know, and think that that's also only a province of the left or the right. I think mm-hmm. you're you're still going to see policy experimentation happening at local and state levels from people who might be pegged as moderate. And the problem is this two party system we have creates so much division and the talking points that the media and the parties perpetuate that it makes people think that there really are these two hard sides that have to be arguing with each other. And it's just not necessarily the case. So Mm. I think more representative is the key and it will break us out of this idea that it's us and them. And it's this group with this one set of ideas and this other group with this other set of ideas. So to some degree, you know, more moderate is more representative and to another degree, this is all a construct and we're all people and we all want to, you know, have good jobs, you know, and, and, or stable income for our families, be able to take care of our kids and, you know, have a good life. And there's really more that unites us than divides us. Yeah. I think that's a, a good point. Just one thing that, you, that you're pointing out is that it is, it is right. We do construct these systems. And what we're going to be talking about in the episode that is going on this weekend that is yet to be released, part of what we're going to be discussing is the way in which the institutions of our elections or of anything, our institutions generally shape our behavior, right? And shape what outcomes become possible. And so I think you're right, right? In that, you know, the, the the system that we have shapes behaviors in a certain way. It It is necessarily adversarial and oppositional. And so I think, right, these alternatives and the, uh, approval runoff in particular, right, might shape behaviors in different ways and for the better. So I think that that is, that's very important to remember for, for our listeners is the way in which these institutions do shape our behaviors and shape how our politics functions. And so it's not just a question, an isolated question of, you know, how are we electing or how are we choosing the people who represent us? But the fact that how we choose the people who represent us is going to affect sort of what policies we may see or how we sort of deliberate about policies. And that's very important. It doesn't stop at the door of of voting in particular, right? It sort of blows the whole thing wide open in ways that are, you know, I think to pretty much any observer today seem seem necessary. It's exactly right. And you're bringing us back to you know, what we talked about near the beginning of this episode, which is the incentives in our political system create behaviors for our elected officials, both mm-hmm. on money and politics and on voting. And people, you know, anyone who's taken econ 101 knows people respond to incentives of various mm-hmm. kinds. And lots of people get into politics to do the right thing. They want to govern like they're on the West Wing, not like they're in House of Cards. <laughs> right. <laughs> but this system yeah. has its incentives. And so we shouldn't be surprised when things happen the way they do over and yeah. over and over again. And, you know, the political industrial complex is doing just fine. They're raising more money than they ever have. Than ever. It's crazy. But yeah. the problems 
are not getting solved and they can keep campaigning yeah. and kicking the political football back and forth and raising more and more money without actually helping people. And so that's what we at Show Me Integrity and reform groups around the country. We're all part of, you know, national convenings and networks so we can share best practices. And we obviously consult with local groups and leaders and write policies that local folks want to see based on national best practices. That's what we're here to solve. So if your listeners take one thing away from this episode is that change is possible. It's happening. And we need you to get involved because it's a people's movement. And what we mm -hmm. don't have is the kind of money and entrenchment that political parties and special interests have, but we do have the people on our side and that's why we're winning. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Ben, for talking with us. I thought that was a fantastic conversation. Oh, yeah. I know I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot as well. And you know, maybe we'll have a chance to talk in the future. Who knows? Like I said, we appreciate you coming on. We appreciate li you listening to Spectacles, and we can't wait to, to, you know, talk more about the subject of voting in America and how things can be addressed with the rest of our content at Spectacles, which I know is something we're going to be dealing with all the time throughout the future. Absolutely. Um, well, the the efforts for voting reform are definitely moving forward, both on ranked choice voting and approval voting and so much more. So we'll definitely yeah. have more to talk about. I look forward to chatting again, and hopefully we can meet in person sometime too. Certainly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing to Spectacles In Conversation to hear discussions between the editors and sometimes guests from Reflections and Bird's Eye. If you'd like to hear each new article of focus and insight read aloud, follow the link in the show notes to Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to visit Show Me Integrity's website to learn more about the organization and what they're doing, there's a link in the show notes for that. And if you'd like to make a comment on this episode, there will also be a link in the show notes to our website, where you'll be able to sign up for our newsletter to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week, if you haven't already. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.